This is Hammond for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. If you like what you're listening to, go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast. I haven't done an interview in a while, but when Jack Jenkins' new book came out, I, I knew I wanted to do this. For those who don't know, Jack is a national reporter for Religion News Service and a former senior religion reporter for Think Progress. His new book is called American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. It's kind of a deep dive into what many people call the religious left. So, Jack, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Uh, basically, what, so I wanted to, sure, what I want to really ask you is... Uh, I have a bunch of questions about some of the things you talk about in the book, but for those who aren't familiar and we only know about the religious right, tell me what the religious left is and how that's different other than just, okay, they're, they're progressive on some things. Yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's an important question and there's some debate about what exactly it is. And the truth is, is it's looked different depending on which era of American history you're talking about. For instance, like modern day, Religious day activists often harken back to these historical examples of the abolitionist movement or the early labor movement or the civil rights movement where faith groups and faith leaders in particular played an outsized role. Um, and, and actually in the mid 20th century, it, it was mostly liberal Christianity in particular, like this broad um, group that kind of held a lot of sway in American politics. But by the time you get to the last like decade, decade and a half, um, the religious left looks a little different. And I think that's partially because the modern left looks a little different. It's significantly more diverse ideologically, racially, um, as well as religiously. And what that has meant is that the modern religious left kind of looks like the modern left, which is that it's a coalition of coalitions. It's different groups that often have specific agendas, you know, um, say rooted in immigration reform or um, combating climate change or fighting for the impoverished. And then there are these overlapping moments when those movements that might be led by one or several faith leaders find common cause. And whether that's you know something in just in the state of North Carolina, for instance, like the Moral Mondays movement, or the election of Donald Trump and everything that his uh, administration represents to these groups, it's these mostly activist groups in particular. Um, there are some electoral, you know, politics things going on here, but really kind of activist groups in particular that become the the, the bleeding edge of the religious left and the ones that have had the most impact. And that's everything from Catholic nuns to indigenous rights activists to pastors such as Reverend William Barber heading up the Poor People's campaign. Um, so it's a, it's a very eclectic and diverse group that looks different depending on what time of year you're talking about. But mm -hmm. these days, it's really kind of just the activist edge of the left. So if it's a coalition of coalitions, can you get them to, not you personally, but can they be, can they work together on any particular cause? Or like you're saying, it shifts depending on what we're talking about. Or is someone like Donald Trump kind of a unifier in all of this where it's like, yeah, we all have our pet projects, but let's put them aside for a second because overall we're on the same team. Right. Now, this is a good question because uh, the short answer is yes and no. Um, so what, uh, many of the movements that I cover in the book, for instance, the New Sanctuary Movement, where religious communities actually take people into their houses of worship who are at risk of deportation and kind of direct defiance of the federal government. The original Sanctuary Movement dates back to the 80s. The new Sanctuary Movement actually started under Obama. But it, that movement of faith communities, you know, doing this as a way to kind of help protect immigrants exploded after Trump was elected. 
because so he's deporting different people left and right. Refugees are in trouble. Exactly. Exactly. You know, because of his rhetoric around, you know, the, the travel ban in and of itself isn't, you know, it, they take it as both an anti-refugee um, position and an anti-immigrant position, you know, p- couple that with the uh, family separation policy around the U.S.-Mexico border that, you know, separated immigrant families. And that only galvanized this new sanctuary movement. So you then you have leaders from other movements who really want to show up for the new sanctuary movement and say, yes, we're in solidarity with you. And then since, you know, um, immigration overlaps heavily with climate change, because many of the large migrations recently have been sparked directly or indirectly by um, climate change, at least that's, that's what a lot of our scientists and experts are telling us, um, you start to see overlaps with those movements. And since um, the current administration and Trump has not made the same moves to combat climate change that um, you know, the Obama administration has, if anything, they've actually rolled back a lot of Obama era um, regulations. Again, you start to see a movement that was kind of fractured, you know, faith voices and communities that had kind of been fractured under the Obama administration, still active, but not working in tandem, suddenly finding a common cause and more specifically a common enemy in the Trump administration. So that's how they've kind of, you know, gathered together, particularly in this moment um, to help, you know, basically be part of the resistance movement. So this is what I don't get about that. You have all these different groups who have very strong reasons to fight back against the Trump administration. It sounds like those different coalitions, when you put them all together, we're talking about a lot of people. On the other side, you have the religious right who has almost been unified in Mm -hmm. supporting Trump. But that's a very narrow, I mean, it's a narrow religious scope we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Um, But they definitely seem like they have so much more power. Are they just that much more numerous despite being a smaller slice of the pie? Because it seems like the religious left, if they're galvanizing all these people together around all these different issues as much as you can, that on paper should be a bigger coalition than the religious right. And yet it doesn't seem like they have any of the power. Right. I think there's a few things going on there. One is that, you know, the religious right is relatively homogenous compared to the religious left, right? You know, in terms of racial diversity and theological diversity, it's not, it doesn't have, it doesn't have anywhere near the complexity as the religious left. And so there's less, you know, bridge building and coalition building that has to be done in that space than um, in this, you know, progressive faith space. And they've, you know, kind of pushed down on two or three issues, and particularly abortion and opposition to same-sex marriage, um, over the last like four or five decades, and kind of really cemented a power that, as you note, votes disproportionately compared to their slice of the population. Mm-hmm. Now, what the thing about the religious left, though, is that this is the same critique some people give the left in general, which is that on paper, you know, progressives, different communities of color, different impoverished communities, different communities that are negatively affected by many Republican policies should outvote the right on election day. But some there's more argue, of us. Yeah, exactly. Um, we are many and they are few. But right. uh, many would argue, and I think one of the reasons I call my book American Prophets is that one of the reasons you see that the religious left uses um, the way that they try to influence power is often through the art of protest, as opposed to, say, the courts or the ballot box is because communities that are often disenfranchised or you know don't have direct access to power, their greatest mechanism is protest. That's how they are able to accrue access to the ballot box and ask access to the courts. And so as they are more successful in those efforts and as they are more enfranchised and there's fewer um, efforts to you know literally keep some of these communities from voting, 
um, then then they'll able to they'll be able to actualize more of that power. But because it's so much more complicated, and because communities that are represented within the religious left are often underrepresented in culture and in politics as it is, um, you know that that getting to the ballot box on election day is somewhat harder. Now, I will note that some of these communities have made the difference. So. Um, African-American Protestants in particular, are, one, arguably the reason that Joe Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee, and two, they're also a big reason why um, Roy Moore is not the Republican senator from Alabama, but Doug Jones is. Now, granted, Roy Moore was a uniquely flawed candidate right. in a lot of ways, but when it came to Election Day, African-American Protestants, many of them coming uh, spurred by their churches, were the ones who showed up in a big way in Alabama. Um, so there are these pockets in which they became really electorally important. But I think there's just more there's there's more ground to cover in, in those communities than the religious right has, given how much work and effort and they've uh, they've done over the last several decades and how much power they already have at their disposal. And do you think you're saying that if they can? not figure out, they know how to do it. But if they could get easier access to the ballot box, if those obstacles were out of the way, is would this even be a contest? Or would the religious left so outnumber the religious right on these issues? Because I think you've said this before, um, and you brought it up briefly, like the religious right outweighs their numbers at the ballot box. They vote right. above their weight. Yes. Um, there are a certain percentage of the population, but more of that on election day. Yes. And the left is the opposite, more or less. Yes. And, uh, and I, yeah. yeah. And I think part of that, too, is that, I mean, the, the left also is is a coalition, right? So roughly, depending on how you count it, whether 70% or two-thirds of the um, Democratic Party, you know, believes in God in some capacity. And then you have the religiously unaffiliated which some of whom are atheists and agnostics, some of whom just like don't care that much and others who like pray daily, but don't want to, you know, um, you know, affiliate with one faith or another, but the religiously unaffiliated are relatively united in that there is some discomfort with, you know, preaching from a presidential podium, for instance. And so you got to work with that, that section too. And so there's just a lot more movement that has to happen among the progressive coalition writ large um, in you know, in general, and the religious left in particular, to 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 kind of push back against the religious right on election day. So, if you Joe Biden hires you all of a sudden and says, "I want to galvanize the religious left to vote for me," what is it that his campaign needs to do to get that slice of the pie, uh, at least the ones who might be apathetic or might stay home? What issues? Are you pushing like the faith outreach people at Joe Biden's campaign? What should they be doing? What are they not doing right now? Because I know he has some faith outreach people, but like, what is it that they need to do more of? So I I, I would be loath to give the Biden campaign advice, but I will say <laughs> what has worked in the past and what they have already done, which is yeah. that, um, I mean, one of the things that his campaign did in the primary is they hired a faith outreach director specifically for um, South Carolina before Which anybody else did the tipping point for joe biden exactly and by they, they i believe they hired that person in august and by december of, of last year they had the endorsement of 100 faith leaders just in the state of south carolina mm -hmm. um and so obviously there's a lot of factors going into that but that is one of the reasons that he was so strong in that state come election day i mean i walked into a joe biden office when i was doing reporting down there right before the primary and on the wall was just a sign that said preachers heart joe biden right like wow. they're Faith outreach element extended all the way down just to their regular campaign offices. 
And, you know, what, what he does have is a model from when the last time, you know, the first time he really ran as at, at a national level for president and got past the primary, which was when he was um, Barack Obama's VP in 2008. And Barack Obama had the largest faith outreach apparatus, arguably for any candidate, Republican or Democrat, um, at least in modern political history. And he had, you know, th these people who were all in headquartered in um, Chicago, who had different um, faith communities that they were specifically targeting, targeting whether that was Muslim Americans or historically Black Protestants or Catholics, um, and and Joe Biden, as of yet, doesn't have that same apparatus quite yet. And you know, he does have Hillary Clinton's faith outreach director from 2016 is one of his deputy political directors, and he is also aided by the fact that the Democratic Party has now hired a faith outreach director, which they did not have in 2016. They did have one in 2012, and they've hired that same person back <laughs> this last go round, saying, I, well, maybe we've learned from some mistakes. But, I, I was just going to ask you, compared to what Hillary Clinton did in 2016 in terms of faith outreach, because, again, that's a huge part of the Democratic base, is Biden, what mistakes is Biden learning from, from the Hillary campaign in 2016? Is it just hiring certain people? Is it... Uh, doing more to get that vote out because that's such a huge slice of the Democratic pool? Well, so like there's a few different things going on here. The, the Clinton campaign, um, as you well know, it's kind of like this old adage in D.C. now where like if they'd just done one thing different, yeah. she would have won. And one of those things that comes up is that she actually has this robust faith story and acumen. She's able to kind of talk about her Methodism. She's like spoken at the Methodist conference before. Um, and it just didn't show up a whole lot in her 2016 campaign. And part of the reason, it, it, there's a structural issue there um, that some people point to, which is that, you know, you could only, it, it wasn't a top-down system for faith outreach. If the state directors requested it, then they could get some um, resources and attention paid to it. If they didn't, it might be kind of more ad hoc. So one of the places you saw Hillary Clinton really invest in faith outreach in 2016 was actually in Utah, because there was this theory that if you could play there big enough, you could actually just, you know, you, nobody would get the delegates, right? Like they would, you would go to a third party or there just wouldn't Evan be enough. McMullen or something, yeah. Exactly, like you might not win it, but you could just run up the score enough um, to pull enough away from the other side that perhaps Evan McMullen could have gotten it. And you did see some actual, some movement there. Um, but I mean, I think there's a lot of folks who think she could have done more with African-American Protestants. I think there's a lot of folks who think she could have done more with Catholics in the Rust Belt. And I think to, for Biden, I think he's looking at those exa case examples and he does particularly well with white working class voters in general. Um, Better than you know, Hillary did years ago. Yes. Yes. And I think he does have that Catholic background, but he should also be looking at places that at least some strategists I've talked to have been saying, look, you know, Donald Trump barely won Michigan in 2016. And there is a significant Muslim American population around Detroit and in Dearborn, Michigan, in that same area. But even George W. Bush tried to court back in 2000. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there just hasn't been that Bernie Sanders has actually did a whole lot of outreach to that community during his both 2016 and 2020 campaigns. And they're hoping to see, you know, these strategists are hoping to see that replicated this go round, as well as there's one other constituency that's kind of in play, which is Hispanic Protestants who aren't necessarily a huge community, but they do have sizable populations in swing states like Florida, where, and they, and they are relatively a swing vote. They actually, you know, they're, they're generally supportive of immigration reform and of action on climate change, but generally opposed to abortion and not as strong as the average Democrat, say, in supporting same-sex marriage. 
And it's unclear when they've done polling who they might actually side with on election day. And the the word that we're hearing is they're hearing way more from Republicans right now than they are from Democrats. So that's a long-winded way of saying that the Biden campaign, it looks like it's shaping up to be, when you talk about faith outreach, you're not talking about a mallet, you're talking about using a scalpel. You know, lots of different specific um, constituency outreach with a faith lens. So let me ask you, you brought up like maybe 30% or so of the Democratic Party is unaffiliated with religion. One question that I've heard a lot in my community is just none of these candidates have any sort of outreach to non-religious voters specifically. And I kind of get that in the sense of like, well, where are you going to go? But also they're not even trying. Maybe that's because they already know they have us in the bag by and large, but also they're not, I mean, I'm not expecting any endorsements of atheism or anything, but like, surely there are issues like church state separation that would be easy for someone like Joe Biden to get behind. Why not push that? Because there are a lot of apathetic nuns who could be votes. And if we're talking about the scalpel for some of these smaller religious communities, you could use a mallet on us and no one's doing that. I don't get why none of the Democrats have really made that push. I, I think you have data to back your point on this one um, because the, the religiously unaffiliated, although there's a blip in this last, um, I, 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 I won't, don't quote me, but I would yeah. point reader and listeners to look this up. There was a blip in the 2018 midterms where religiously unaffiliated started to really show up in a big way in the ballot box. Um, but c- c- generally they are the opposite of the religious right in which they vote under their weight. They, yes. they, they show up in smaller constituencies, but to your point, if no one's courting their votes <laughs> specifically, right, right, they're getting touches in other ways. Um, you know, maybe that's one. there's an argument that maybe that's one of the reasons they're not being courted in the same way. And I think there's this, what I've heard quite frequently is that there's this false dichotomy where you can either do faith outreach or you can do outreach to the religiously unaffiliated or the atheists and agnostics and skeptics. And the truth is, obviously, you could do both. Um, and, you know, th- like a candidate is not, you can try to be all things to all people, but also can kind of, you know, say, maybe I'm not the perfect person for this community, whether that's a religious community or an atheist community, but I do want to represent your interests and values. And, and it seems, you know, a, a Democrat saying, hey, I do want to make sure that I maintain the separation of church and state. I do want to make sure that, you know, there's a there's a difference between talking about faith and politics and trying to, uh, like, you know, run afoul the um, establishment clause and making sure that those who are um, atheist, agnostic or unaffiliated are represented in government um, and not facing disproportionate, um, you know, discrimination at the ballot boxes they've suffered. You know, that seems like things you could just drop into a stump speech. And it's surprising to me. I would I think so. <laughs> and yeah, I haven't before. heard it much at all. And that's still, I mean, I was shocked that no one did it in the primaries in any meaningful way. Yeah. But in the general, it seems like you're, what do you have to lose in the general? Uh, if you're Biden at this point, I don't know. Um, going back to the religious left for a second. Um, I know the religious right is, like you said, almost entirely white evangelical Christians with some smatterings of others here and there. But for the religious left, uh, how much of that is Christian? Because you mentioned William Barber. Uh, there are some other names who are explicitly Christian. But how much of that movement is non-Christian? So I think there's two different answers to that question. In terms of raw number of human beings, right, who might show up on election day, that is disproportionately Christian just because, you know, the United States is disproportionately Christian. It is a smaller percentage of Christian than you would find in the religious right by, yeah. by leaps and bounds, right? Like it is significantly fewer than that. 
but it still leans generally Christian. That's the bit, you know, that, that's everyone from Quakers to, you know, Catholics to um, um, historically black Protestants to mainline Protestants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, when you're talking about activists who are kind of helping lead a lot of these resistance movements, I would argue it's even more diverse. So you do have people like Reverend William Barber, head of the Portugal's campaign, and Reverend Liz Theo Harris, his co-chair. Um, you also have people like Reverend Tracy Blackman, who was a big presence in the Ferguson demonstrations and at Charlottesville as well. Um, and you have a bunch of Catholic leaders like Sister Simone Campbell, the head of the Catholic Social Justice Lobby Network, who was really influential in getting the Affordable Care Act passed, um, and you know a smattering of other people in that space. But you also have people like Linda Sarsour, who is one of the four co-chairs of the Women's March, who is controversial for a variety of reasons, but a very effective organizer mm -hmm. um, and has proven very influential over the last few years. You have multiple Jewish groups like Ben the Ark, Jewish Action, um, and then just the involvement of entire denominations, such as the Union for Reform Judaism. You have multiple different Sikh activists. You have, you know, Simran Jeet Singh is both an academic and an activist at times. Um, and, and those communities and voices, and then of course you have the indigenous rights activists, um, activists who are, are many and don't have necessarily one single person who speaks for that entire community, but they have proven to be very effective at protesting, whether that was at Standing Rock, which for the record helped inspire um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez apparently to run for office because as she describes it, she has spiritual experience there, or the folks in Mount Kea on top of a mountain in a, a dormant volcano in Hawaii. And those, those communities are also very spiritual and a component of the religious left. So, and when you see these gatherings, like when you saw um, William Barber hold a protest outside the White House last summer, um, along with Reverend Liz Theo Harris as a component of the Poor People's Campaign. This was a, uh, a, a gathering that was like many, many of some of the leaders I just mentioned were there, representatives from like virtually every major faith community in the United States um, who were progressive were there and spoke. And then who also showed up was Pete Buttigieg. And unlike uh, conservative politicians who might show up to a religious right gathering, who actually get on stage, Pete Buttigieg actually just remained silent in the crowd as a quote unquote silent witness. And the photo op that he got from that event was him literally sitting at the feet of William Barber. But I think it's telling to me that not only was that the kind of the event that, that was signaling this big important moment that Pete Buttigieg wanted to go to, but the next week, when the Poor People's Campaign held their presidential candidates forum, um, nine candidates showed up. And there were supposed to be 10, but Julian Castro like missed his flight. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so you had Bernie Sanders, you had uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden and others all there speaking to a, a religiously diverse group. And they saw it as activists, like speaking to progressive activists. Meanwhile, when Netroots Nation had their own candidates forum, this established progressive gathering, right, right. they only got four. And, and I think that's telling that, that from the perspective of you know, candidates, they saw this as speaking to these activists and those activists were far more religiously diverse than even the makeup of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, is there room in that coalition because of all the things you're talking about? I don't hear a lot of non-religious, explicitly non-religious voices in there. Um, is that by design? Is that because eh, what are we, who are we going to talk to? What are we going to do? Or, I mean, is there room for non-religious voices in that movement or is it explicitly monotheist or whatever you want to call it? Like, or just theists in general, is there space for non-religious voices in that mix? So this is an, I think this is an important question because if Joe Biden were to be elected president um, come November, I'm, I'm still, it's an unanswered question as to what happens to this coalition that has been built, right? Does it um, stay close to power? Does it 
go back to this more prophetic resistance you know, movement, even against a Democrat, which they have definitely done in the past. And um, and there are definitely you will hear many of these leaders very specifically name check the non-religious or the um, or those who are atheistic or agnostic. They they will get mentioned, but whether or not they're on the stage is a different question. At a local level, you do see um, atheists and humanist groups in particular show up and be represented. At the national level, that's far rarer. Right. And and I don't know where that disconnect comes from. But you're not the only person who's brought this up that says you know it, should there also be these other groups there. And I, the, the short answer, I think, is that a lot of these leaders would be fine with that because many of these activists, the activists in particular, are used to having to then go to more secular activist groups and make the same pitch that they were making on the stage to a bunch of religious left um, devotees. But functionally, why that hasn't happened on those stages, why you haven't had a humanist chaplain you know, right. also standing on stage next to it at a national level event or when that or relatively rarely when that occurs. I don't have a good answer for why that hasn't I mean, occurred yet. Even when o- I believe even when Obama had his uh, faith advisory council, there were no non-religious voices on that yeah. list either. And that's at the national stage. These are people we want input from. And there are any number, like you mentioned, humanist chaplains, there are voices. And yet, as far as I can tell, no major candidate has reached out or done anything to make that happen. Um, what is the religious rights take on the religious left? Are they just totally dismissive of it? Because on you could argue, well, they're brothers in Christ. I mean, they could be allies, but they're obviously not. Are they just dismissive of it? Or is it, nah, we don't care about them. They're political foes. So historically, this has gone through what I trace as three phases, right? There was this basically what we now, the the progenitors to the modern religious um, right kind of lost in the 1920s and 1930s to, you know, kind of lefty social gospel types and liberal Christians. And they kind of, they they kind of retreated. They didn't, there's a, Kevin Cruz wrote a whole book about how this is an overly simplistic narrative, but I'm going to use it anyway for the illustrative (laughs) purposes, um, which is that they kind of retreated from society in a political way for a short span. There were actually some groups that ended up making what we now know as the prosperity gospel during this time, but politically they were kind of not as active as they had been in the early 20th, 20th century. Once you get to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the religious right came back with force. When by the time they came back, the groups like the National Council of Churches, which used to have like a lot of political power, didn't have as much power anymore. And the religious right kind of did kind of com- um, combat the religious left a little bit. But as we got into the late 90s and early 2000s, they mostly just dismissed them. And by the time you got to the the, the 2010s, um, they were basically they ignored them altogether. They would argue that they're you know part of these dying denominations, that they're anemic, and they would just ignore like the perspective of black Protestants quite often um, as saying, you know, we disagree, you know, like they, they would kind of uh, phrase it vaguely. But what's been interesting about the last three or four years is that you've started to see some of these um, religious right figures and the new cadre of religious right figures that um, Trump kind of brought in when he came into office, which are, you know, a new group of, of people who often preach the prosperity gospel, for instance, mm, the Paula they white start, types. Yes. The Paula white types and some more overt Christian nationalists, such as um, Robert. Jeffress, yeah. Right. And so, but they've actually started to become overtly critical of the religious left. And so you get to the point where uh, Jerry Falwell jr. President of Liberty university, um, a key ally of the president is now founded at um, with Charlie Kirk, a uh, a right you know a conservative uh, commentator 
um, this thing called the Falkirk Center at, Uni at uh, Liberty University that was designed to like, you know, protect, you know, this sort of fusion of Christianity and, and patriotism, depending on how you define it. And one of the first things they did was challenge Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, you know, a more a close ally of Reverend William Barber and Barber himself to a debate over whether or not Jesus was a socialist. And, you know, it was this interesting, very like come out of the gate. We need to combat this perspective, um, you know, a position from this group that if you start to look different corners of the religious right have started to, to say, talk dismissively and, and kind of frust uh, with frustration about the religious left. And I think that might be because it's at least more vocal, if not accruing more power. So historically, they've kind of ignored them or dismissed them. But we're now starting to see a resurgence of arguments dismissing particularly the Christian part of the religious left from the religious right, because they just dismissed the other parts that, you know, the religious As right. And they're not real Christians, that sort of dismissal. Exactly. And, and that dates back to the early 20th century when they said that these modernist and liberal Christians were capitulating to society because they wanted to use science while interpreting the Bible. And, um, and, and now you're hearing those same arguments. Oh, these people have just been capitulated. They have, they're just instruments. Their religion is the Democratic Party. Right. I can see Falwell or Robert Jeffress saying what you just said about that. Are younger Christians in general going along the same lines? I have to imagine a lot of young evangelicals either are friendly with or know a lot of progressive people, even within their churches. Um, are they going along the same lines or are they becoming more progressive in general because they're not in the bubble? So, so this is actually... This is a, uh, an interesting question because we don't we we're still trying to figure out exactly what's happening to young evangelicals because they are in many ways more progressive than um, than older evangelicals. They are still not breaking from the fold as quickly as say mainline Christians um, have in the last few decades. Um, but they are you know they, they do tend to like lean more left on things like climate change, for instance, among other things. And as you note, they do have these figures who often get kicked out of mainstream evangelicalism. Um, like Brian McLaren, for instance, who you actually have a big following evangelicalism and then they do something, you know, say endorse same-sex marriage or, you know, talk about universalism and they are, they stop selling their books and they have, they, they go preach to a lot of progressive Catholics and, um, mainliners for like most of their career. And, and, you know, they kind of talked about how there's kind of this, you know, this, this excommunication that happens in that community, but the younger generation there has been this effort by people like Shane Claiborne and others to sort of carve out this almost progressive evangelicalism. And it's certainly louder than it used to be. The question is whether or not it's growing, right? So there was this, I write about it in my book, this thing called the Red Letter Revival, which was this criticism of uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, in Liberty University, where a group of um, progressive evangelicals, for lack of a better term, you know, held a gathering that was a tent revival, you know, there were altar calls and everything, um, but was also clearly designed to critique uh, the, the the leadership of Jerry Falwell Jr. and his affiliation with Donald Trump. They held and, it in Lynchburg. In Lynchburg. Um, they, they held another one near Jefferson's church later, by the way. Um, but they, uh, but they, when they did this, you know, they were hoping for a large crowd and they got a few hundred, but it wasn't anywhere near what particularly in evangelical circles where they're used to mega churches, the kind of numbers that they really wanted. And you'll hear them say, and maybe there's some truth to this, that this is still a movement that they're building. But there's another argument that some of these evangelical expats, people who grew up in, you know, kind of conservative evangelical backgrounds, who then kind of leave the fold, 
don't necessarily stay in progressive evangelicalism. They, they go somewhere else, they either leave religion entirely or they end up sitting in the back of Episcopal churches. And, um, and so like, we're not entirely sure. I think there's like a whole research project to be done about what is happening to those constituencies because they're definitely different from their parents. But whether or not they're willing to, if, if they leave the fold to create something new or simply just, you know, a lot of them become atheist agnostics or um, secular in general um, and their disposition. They just, they just don't. In fact, uh, there was some data a few years ago um, produced by, I'll admit, a friend of mine, Alfredo Garcia Mora, um, that showed a direct correlation between the development of atheists and humanist groups in, a, in, in counties and the presence of like large evangelical churches. Um, there's friction theory that kind of goes on there. Um, the, the pendulum can, sw- can swing. Um, but I but think I, I remember when I was working with the Secular Student Alliance, we found it very easy to start college atheist groups in places like Texas, Alabama, where uh, there was a h- large evangelical presence on campus. But it was really hard for us to find any solid groups in places like Oregon or New Hampshire or whatever, where mo- everyone you meet is more or less atheistic or non-religious or whatever. Um, good luck finding a group in Oregon at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, along the same lines, like, yeah, if you yeah. if you want to find an atheist group, find a bunch of Christians, you're going to find that group <laughs> there because um, that's where it is. Uh, for the atheists who are not, I, I'm familiar with some of the names you mentioned in your book and the, the progressive uh, religious left figures you're mentioning. For the atheists who are not familiar with them, who are like one or two of the biggest names? Uh, William Barber, you mentioned. Anyone else like this is a name that should be on your radar because they are such influential voices on the left. Right. Another one is Sister Simone Campbell, who runs the network, this Catholic social justice lobby. She's been doing this work for a long time. She kind of got clout um, after helping she and Sister Carol Kean, who was head of the, of the Catholic Health Association at the time, were instrumental in helping get the Affordable Care Act passed. And that's not me saying that. Barack Obama said that. Mm-hmm. And after that, the, the Vatican actually came down on a lot of uh, nuns and they were, they were going to do it anyway, but it, you know, their argument is that it, it was expedited because they pushed back against the bishops because um, the bishops did not come out in support of the Affordable Care Act and these nuns did. And what that did is allowed, um, it, it ended up giving a lot of um, clout politically to uh, nuns in the United States and then Sister Simone Campbell in particular. And so she launched a whole bus campaign in 2012 decrying the budget of you know, then House Speaker Paul Ryan um, saying that this Republican budget didn't help the poor, and he was trying to invoke c- Catholic ideals to support it, and she was invoking Catholic ideals to decry it, and then she ended up speaking on the deba- uh, on the national stage at the 2012 Democratic National Convention, and got and during prime time and got a standing ovation, and she's very close, um, as as close as any advocate can be with Joe Biden, and in fact, you know, they she told me that she was still she was advising and in constant conversation with his campaign. Um, as recently as two or three months ago when I turned in the manuscript for my book. Um, And so so I doubt that that has gone away. And so she has a strong economic critique. That's her, she's a lobbyist and her constituency happens to be the poor. Um, And she's also a big voice on Capitol Hill in particular. So she's kind of, if the religious left has this, you know, kind of Hill um, lobbyist person, she's an important figure there. Um, and you, you also have people I mentioned, Linda Sarsour, who you know was the co-chair of the um, the Women's March. And you also have people. I will note some of these movements don't have central figures. So, like the new mm-hmm. the new sanctuary movement 
doesn't have a central figure. It, it, it is just various different faith communities being willing to um, offer up their, their sanctuaries to uh, undocumented immigrants at risk of deportation. Similarly, with um, the indigenous rights movement, there are, there are several different, there's a constellation of figures that are active. Like, you know, if you're in Hawaii, Pua Case is the person you want to speak to, but that it's a different group when you it, it go out to Standing Rock or if you're in Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you have some politicians who seem to be really close with this. For instance, you know, I would argue that Cory Booker has spent the most time with many of these activists, at least in my reporting, um, over the last few years than anyone else. You know, he used to always kind of be at these demonstrations where there would only be like 50 people and then Cory Booker would be standing there and then they would hand him the signatures and he would be, I'll take these into the, into the Senate now. Um, and so he's kind of a figure that has often attached himself um, or at least been attached to uh, religious left um, figures and voices. Um, so that's, there's actually, there's legion number of people here, but those are the, some of the ones I think of off the top of my head. Um, you mentioned part of this is there are no one or two big figures to counter like the religious right. But like, is there a legal strategy, e- even if protest is kind of their big thing that the religious left does, it seems almost irresponsible not to have a, a strategy legally mm-hmm. to get judges through or whatever, because we know the religious right has a strategy for getting that, for making sure their judges uh, are nominated and voted on. Does the religious left, as opposed to the left in general, which is starting to push back on this, is there any sort of legal strategy for the religious left? Are they fighting for whatever they believe their rights are through the courts, or is that changing? So some par- parts of them have, right? So the, the New Sanctuary Movement in particular actually is basically a partnership between faith communities and lawyers. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and when you look at those, like when I chronicle, the chapter I chronicle in my book, um, I talk about the faith communities, but equally as influential was actually one of the lawyers in the church that I talk about um, as the case example in my book. You know, she is also a faith-based activist, but she is a lawyer and works with many different legal groups to help develop the strategy that became both the original sanctuary movement and the new sanctuary movement. Similarly, um, in the LGBTQ rights movement, you know, the, the church, um, the Christian church, and then faith groups in general have often been in direct conflict with LGBTQ rights, but there have also been great champions of LGBTQ rights within faith communities. And there was this group called the um, Campaign for Southern Equality that was rooted in North Carolina and throughout the South. And they were actually instrumental in getting same-sex marriage legalized in um, in the state of North Carolina, that you know, marriage equality legalized. They're the ones who filed the case along with the uh, United Church of Christ, like the denomination signed on, as well as several progressive clergy helped bring that case um, to the federal level. And then it was it was another big case where everybody within a district suddenly you know decided um, because one judge had decided, but it was their case that had been that helped establish that in uh, there was both a religious right on liberty claim and a 14th Amendment claim that ended up you know helping get that passed in that state. But what you're often also seeing is that when I talk about the religious left as this coalition of coalitions within the umbrella, the big tent of the left, I mean that seriously, because they often work in tandem with these secular groups as just one component of this bigger whole. For instance, uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York, which is this historic, progressive, um, you know, liberal seminary, uh, and has been the source of a lot of activism over the last century or so. Um, they, just in the past um, month or so, teamed up with the ACLU 
to run ads to help um, pressure lawmakers and governors to release prisoners who are at risk of catching COVID-19 from captivity if they are disproportionately at risk, if they're older, et cetera, et cetera. And you've seen those partnerships happen often in the past where these faith-based and or faith-rooted groups end up partnering with like the ACLU. And instead of doing what the religious right has done and create all of these like progressive religious media outlets, right? When there are some, to be sure, you have sojourners, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't create, you know, Christian Broadcasting Network. Instead, if you just turn on MSNBC, you're going to see William Barber every once in a while. Right. And so it's one of those things where they just become part of the community as opposed to having to create their own universe as the religious right once did. Which arguably is better for their long-term strategy too, as opposed to siloing themselves in one area. Um, right. A couple quick questions for you. One is, uh, I got to know you because you were writing for Think Progress, and that site, sadly, is no longer with us. I'm just wondering, uh, is there is there, what do you think is like, is there a place for sites like that that are advocacy, but also, you know, you had a lot of people writing explanatory uh, mixed with their editorial opinions on certain topics like i miss that i see it in some places some outlets still do that um but it is hard to sustain those types of websites i'm wondering if you see those ever coming back or is that just they're going to slowly fade away into other types of journalism i mean i hope not um i i'm very proud of the time i spent at think progress and very proud to have worked with all those reporters and i think it served an important um, role, not only in progressive journalism, but in journalism writ large, there were multiple stories broken at that outlet that um, proved to have national import. And and if, like you said, you know, it's one of those things where they're open about their editorial slant. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and there you did have this explanatory journalism, and then people like me who did more, you know, we did, we I did explanatory journalism as well, but like, we're definitely, you know, hard on reporting. Um, in addition to that, and that was where we spent most of our days, you have seen, uh, there's a lot of Think Progress alums at places like Vox, right? Yeah. Um, Vox in particular has like, I mean, Matt Iglesias, one of the co-founders of Vox is a Think Progress alum. Right. Um, and so, but you also have Ian Milheiser is over there now. Um, you have a few of our our people, Aaron Rupar, like uh, who have landed in that spot. And there's in many ways, they're kind of the heir, Vox is kind of the heir to this great blogging universe that kind of lasted from like 2003 to 2012, um, where it kind of hit its heyday. And if, if it were up to me, I know that it's difficult to um, keep those kinds of, I mean, obviously the Huffington Post or HuffPost um, has a lot of this stuff too. And you there, there are um, Think Progress alums there as well. And you also have alums like myself who, you know, ended up in more traditional outlets. You know, it, it, there's, we have editors at NPR and people at Washington Post, et cetera. But if it were up to me, I think that there's a value um, for organizations like the Center for American Progress or others to investing in journalism and it, acknowledging that this is a, w- a way to like expose um, truth in the world and to you know make sure that you lift up the voices of activists or um, people who are disproportionately affected by a policy that otherwise will not be heard. They'll be heard as testifying um, at a Senate hearing, but they might not otherwise be heard in media writ large. Mm-hmm. And I do think one of the things that I learned when I was at Think Progress is that, you know, you don't always get the credit for being the person that are being the outlet that broke a story or draw, drew attention to a community. But at the end of the day, if a problem that a group of reporters at Think Progress helped expose suddenly becomes a mainstream issue, or people at the New York Times, or even Fox News are covering it, 
as a, a situation that deserves merit, then that's a journalistic win for everyone. Um, so if it were, I, I, in the, acknowledging that it's a hard time to be a journalist in general, and that it's hard to figure out how to re remain financially stable in the midst of, uh, you know, a pandemic, much less, uh, uh, you know, in, before, um, I do think that I, I wish Think Progress and, or outlets like that would be able to continue on because you also, it's a, and I'll close on this um, for this point, which is that it's also a really great way to train journalistic talent. Yes, uh, for sure. It, it's a great way to bring in young talent and who is who are hungry and let them produce some really great things and then they can go on to different um, career paths. That is very, very true. And and I've seen that in other places as well, training young, younger not just activists, but finding a, a way to take their passions and turn it into something that is just, it's solid journalism. You can't argue with it, even if we can argue with opinions. Um, one last personal question for you that I was genuinely curious about. Everything you I've seen you write, whether it's for Think Progress or Religion News Service, they are articles. They are short bursts of reporting as opposed to a book, which takes right. a year or two to produce. <laughs> I'm wondering for you personally, like, what did you have to switch mentally to go from this short thing where you can like write it, submit it, it's out of your head, you move on to the next topic to you're with this topic for a really long time. Yeah. That's that's a totally different <laughs> set of tools you're using. Very insightful question. I <laughs> uh, um, it was it was a special uh, struggle um, to figure out how to do it. I mean, part of it is a lot of the book is based off of like the foundation of the book is based off of a lot of the reporting I'd already done, right? So like the broad contours of the, the shape the book might take. Um, now it's more obvious looking back, but I, I, I basically had already thought about them framing this book before I started writing it. But, but practically speaking, what ended up happening is I books are, are thankfully divided into chapters. <laughs> and um, and if you start to think of each chapter as a feature length story, which admittedly you can spend months on a feature length story, right. and I you know, I didn't have that same amount of time because um, I also do my day job while writing this book. Right. But if I think of each one as like, okay, you're writing a feature, and it's a mixture of data journalism, explanatory journalism, and on the ground reporting. You know, produce that that m masterpiece. Just do it twelve times. <laughs> um, that made it more manageable, but it, it's, you know, I, I, I don't, I, it's hard to recommend writing a book. It's, I, I definitely recommend having finished a book that feels great. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> but, but you know, the, the, the act of, of doing this was, a spe and it's also like the, the thing, and I'll, I'll say this for other journalists, you know, when you write a book like this, um, you know, you're not writing as a part of an outlet, like you have a publisher, but you don't get to say, you know, this person told religion news service or told thing progress, like they told you. So at some level, you know, you, you have to acknowledge that you're going to be a sm at least a small part of the story that you're telling, because that's the only way the reader is going to understand um, where you're coming from. I mean, there are different ways of doing that. But in my experience, that was like a thing I had to get over where I was like, I don't, I don't even know about me. That's, that's not, I'm a journalist. It's like, no, pay right. no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> um, but but it, was, it, it was worth the struggle and worth the effort as long as and it's just like a whole lot of goal setting. Um, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, you don't have to give anything away, but are you working on uh, thinking about another book? Are you already working on something? Or is it more, let me get back to, you know, daily reporting and things like that? So I, I think, so I, I could lie and tell you that, yeah, I just, you know, this has just been, I'm exhausted. I just want to, you know, get, this is great. I'll go back to my day job. But of course, like you, you turn in the manuscript, and you're already like, oh, wait, I have other ideas as well <laughs> in very different directions. And so, um, 
you know, I, I, I don't think I'm going to be one of those journalists that immediately pumps out his novel after writing a journalistic book. But, but the truth is, I mean, one of the cool things about writing a book is that you get to spend so much time with the topic. And so when you come out the other end of it, you get to say, I, I, you, you feel like you understand a part of um, the United States or the world um, writ large that you didn't understand previously. And, you know, I argue in the book that uh, understanding the religious left is a way to help understand modern progressivism and as a result, um, American politics. But like, there are a lot of other things that now I'm like, well, if I, if they just gave me like a year, I could like definitely sink into it. So I am thinking about them. Sure. I haven't started writing them yet to keep myself sane. Um, yeah. But yeah. I'll, well, I'll, and I'll with something you know. like something like the religious left, which hasn't been covered as thoroughly, I think, as the religious right, the the possibilities really are endless and important. So there's no, I'm sure, there's no limitation of things you could cover. Um, for anyone who's interested, again, the book is American Prophets: The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Uh, you can read Jack Jenkins' reporting at Religion News Service. Thank you again for uh, spending some time with me and thank you for your reporting. It's, it's something I rely on a lot. It's always solid and fair. So I've learned a lot from reading your work. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your work as well. Absolutely.